Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 21. And we trust that even as we've sung this morning, that the Lord might glorify the name of Christ through his word. Acts chapter 21, verse 17 is our text. You can find it in the Pew Bible if you need it. I wish I could tell you the passage, but it's probably in the 900s. I have a a different, uh, not a different translation, but a different Bible than there in the Pew, Pew Bible. Acts chapter 21, 17 through 26. May the Lord honor the reading of his word. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, grant us grace. Father, we come humbly before your word as your people. We submit ourselves to your authority. We ask that you would teach us. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, It is a, a day that we will take for granted and it's a day that we will give thanks for and not even recognize the significance of what that means. That you would have given us life today. That you would have given us brothers and sisters in the faith. That you would so graciously give to us your word. May your name be praised and yours alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is one of those texts that I I find as a wonderful proof uh, for the importance and fruit of the preaching of the Word of God verse by verse through Scripture. Uh, This is the practice of Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship is to take the Scriptures and to just work through them systematically, verse by verse, as we go. Uh, Because it is in texts like these that if you have a cursory glance over, you think, okay, we've got three days and five unique haircuts is pretty much what seems to be in this text. It's a, it's a transitional text from Paul's arriving in Jerusalem to what is going to take place that the Holy Spirit has foretold would take place, that is his persecution, his arrest, and these type of matters. 
But the, the joy of going verse by verse is maybe in your private devotions, you read 17 through 26 and you note it and certainly some things that you might see, but it's just kind of moving along. And yet as we submit ourselves to the text, as we, if you will, take the magnifying glass out and zoom in a little bit, expand it, there's wonder here. The Christian is one who approaches any text, believing in faith that God speaks to us throughout all of his word, not just the exciting parts, but even the odd passages. You know, I, I, if I wasn't preaching verse by verse to scripture, I'd probably never preach 17 through 26. And yet I believe and would submit to us this morning that we would be missing some wonderful truths and certainly the glory of Christ. Now let me just offer to you by way of summation what I think is the driving truth here from this passage seen in its whole. So if you take, if you take all that's taking place with uh, these elders and these uh, unique circumstances that Paul goes through and the haircuts and the vows and the three days and all of these things and you, and you, and you lump them all together, I would submit to you this statement. This text argues for us that a ministry that proclaims Christ for the glory of God keeps us rightly focused when determining how to live among our neighbors. Let me state it again. A ministry that proclaims Christ for the glory of God keeps us rightly focused when determining how to live among our neighbors. Now, is that an accurate statement or not, I submit to you that I believe it is, but you be the judge of that as we test that statement and let the Word of God shape our thinking this morning. If you're looking at your text, we'll divide it into two portions. We're going to split verse 20 down the middle. You see the end of a sentence about halfway through or the first portion there, and we'll take this first section from 17 to verse 20 there at the beginning of it, 20a if you like, and I've just entitled it by way of helpful reminder for me, a wonderful report, and that's what takes place here. Paul has arrived, as we looked at last week, into Jerusalem. What is not noted by Luke in this particular passage, but that we could see if we opened up the book of Romans, for example, is that Paul has come back to Jerusalem with an offering from the Gentile churches uh, to the saints there in Jerusalem. He's presenting it somewhere within this first number of verses, we can surmise. And as he comes into Jerusalem, you see uh, the first two days of the three-day time lapse that takes place in these few verses. And that happens here at the beginning. They come to Jerusalem. The brothers receive this gladly. We looked at that last week. The next day, Paul went with us to see James and all the elders were present. Uh, the brothers, that is the Jerusalem church. The elders, that is those who were leading the church in Jerusalem. James, an apostle. Uh, we aren't uh, told of where else, where the other apostles were. It seems maybe off on missionary journeys, we're not sure, but James is the only one noted here. And you can see what takes place. There's this greeting, and then Paul begins to articulate what God has done through his ministry, and note how he says it, one by one the things that God has done. 
Now, I think it's helpful for us at this point to paint the picture. It probably was a fairly crowded room. We know the church in Jerusalem was of significant size, uh, thousands even. Number of elders may have been quite a few in this room. Paul is beginning to give the stories. And we could take the time, we won't in detail this morning, to turn to our left in our Bible and think of what Paul might have spoken about. He might have told about his time in prison with Silas and what hymns they had sung. How God had miraculously caused an earthquake to free them. Maybe he had told of his time at the Areopagus or when he had gone to Corinth. Maybe some of the persecutions. Told of how God had saved a woman named Lydia, a jailer from Philippi. A riot. How God's power had shown itself above the sons of Sceva over in chapter 19. Maybe he, with a slight smile on his face, told at the time he preached just a few hours too long. And a man fell asleep. And the elders chuckled and went, yep, Paul, we've been trying to tell you that from day one, that you go a little too long. And then of the glory of how God had raised this young man from the dead. Who's to say what he had spoken about? But he, one by one, told of, gave testimony of God's work. Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 17 through 21. I'll read it for you. Turn there if you like. But I'll read it. And it tells of Paul's mindset about his ministry. This is what he says. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lycrum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never heard, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Close quote. Paul had a ministry that was committed to God, that was centered on the preaching of Christ, that garnered a glory to God alone. You see that in verse 20. They glorified God. Now, we we must be very cautious, even as we think about how God works in our church, how God works in our individual lives, lest our pride deceive us in thinking that when we tell someone a story, it's focused on God when it might really be focused on us. It's a very subtle thing. It's quite easy to do. Notice Paul is speaking there in Romans 15 and here in Acts 21 about the things that God had done. I don't don't know what words come out of Paul's mouth, but it's very clear to the Jerusalem elders that everything Paul had Done was nothing Paul had done, but Christ had done through him. 
It's very easy even when someone comes to us and says, I I was so encouraged to see you do, and then they name something they saw you do for Christ, and and you start this idea of, well, thank thank you, yes, I just wanted to, and sometimes I want to tell myself when I start that, shut up, because I'm trying to even at that point make sure they think, oh, yeah, I really was like that, when actuality, in an actuality, it was probably entirely something I didn't even realize I was doing. We we can subtly permeate that which takes place in our lives by the grace of God with our pride, and we have to guard that. Notice the reaction of the elders. They're hearing of the testimony of God's work, and their reaction in verse 20, the first part of it, when they heard it, they glorified God, is a remarkable and unusual reaction. It's entirely of the Spirit. How does one often react when they hear of a peer being used by God, doing well, getting a promotion, being involved in a ministry, succeeding, getting the scholarship, whatever it might be? What's the general thought? I won't tell you what my general thought is. I think you can surmise that. Johann Sebastian Bach, George Frederick Handel, others, used as they would write music, they would notate at the bottom little initials S, D, G. And it stands for Solo Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Bach especially would, would put, those, put those little initials on all his church works and, and even some on his contemporary works. The, the desire being that what was being written was for God alone. And it's a, it's a stamp that should be upon our hearts as well. Whatever comes from this mouth, whatever eyes these things look upon, may it be for the glory of God alone. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. What is the character of God about his glory? Well, it's a very jealous character. Isaiah 42a, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He is not interested in sharing his glory with anyone. There's no room for our pride on the metal stand that displays God's glory. But the pride is a a large concept. And I want to take this a bit further and ask the question, in application, in practicality, what symptoms should we look for in our lives when wanting to guard against a prideful or jealous reaction to another's success? And if I may, I think in today's context, it probably, I don't have it on me, it probably starts with, with the little screens that we carry around in our pockets, our phones. Every Sunday morning, I get the little notification, ting, your screen time this week increased something, something percent, right? Well, that's, that's a tool. That's fine. But there's so many things on that phone. There's Facebook, Twitter, apps, TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest. I don't know what's on yours. 
And as you're going through your day, you're spinning along mindlessly, passing through the day, just a few minutes of distraction here or there. You see someone on that screen. You see someone's family, some outfit, someone's child, some story, some preacher, some pastor, some car, house decoration, lifestyle. And you just have the fleeting little thought. And it's way back in the mind. It's almost being whispered in the shadows. Oh, that'd be nice. I encourage you the next time that little thought enters, just put down the phone and begin asking some heart-searching questions. Because more than likely, what you've begun to do is compare what you have or don't have, where you're at or are not at, what circumstance you're under or are not under, with whatever you're looking at. And comparison it was one of Satan's most effective tools. It's Effective because it seems harmless hanging on the shed wall, if you will, next to all the big ugly ones he has. And then you get this little tiny thing and you think, oh, that, there's no way that can be of any effect upon my heart. But comparison is where he likes to start. Get you comparing and next you will be unknowingly jealous. Get you jealous and now he's got you going down the road of envy. Get you envying and he has you perfectly prepared for bitterness. Get you bitter and now he's got the ability to start destroying friendships. And all of a sudden you're going, where in the world did this come from? If the Jerusalem elders start thinking about their own ministry, while Paul is talking about what God has done through his ministry, thinking, man, it's not been like this in Jerusalem. Comparison, jealousy, envy, and then no response like they glorified God. We sing it at times, the song, All Glory Be to Christ. Here's the first stanza. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life. A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. Well, this is the reaction. Uh, but notice then the reaction that translates from this wonderful report down to an odd preparation. That's the second portion of the text. There, the second half of verse 20 and on toward the end. Note it with me. They glorify God and immediately there's this unique statement. And they said to him, quote, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And then note how they're critiquing Paul, verse 21. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, that's one. Telling them not to circumcise their children, that's two. Or walk according to their customs, three. And then the question, what, what are we gonna do about this? What's the nature of their question? Well, Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles. The Jerusalem church has been mainly involved with the Jews the Jerusalem council the, council, the elders there, James, they're not at odds with Paul. They're in agreement with Paul that Christ alone is the only means by which anyone can be saved. They're in agreement with Paul about the law and the nature of the law and, and how the law is for the Christian now. Uh, the question really at this point is, 
How does discipleship look for the Gentile as compared to the Jew? And Paul, you've been working with the Gentile. The zealous Jews are going to hear you coming in. And there's a potential faction that could arise to distract from the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. What was Paul's understanding of the law? He believed it to be good. But not in any way a method to find approval with God. And that is at times what the Jews, certainly, but even some the Jewish believers were struggling with. How the law still now interacted with the Christian. And Paul certainly is not against the customs of the Jews. We can remember back in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, he takes Timothy, a Gentile, who takes him through circumcision so as not to distract the Jews from the preaching of the gospel. As long as these customs did not interfere with the truth of God's work through Christ, Paul was for it. But then what should be done? Because these folks have a wrong understanding of Paul's testimony. They've gotten a false report or it's been made up by someone. We'll actually learn in the fall because we won't be in Acts again for some time, that it was some of the Jews of which he had ministered to a far way away, the Asian Jews. And the question then, verse 22, what's going to be done? And they submit to him that he follow their advice and they give him the plan, if you will. We've got four guys. These men are under a vow. It's a Nazarite vow probably. And, and one of the ways it would work at that time is if you had some of affluence, they had the ability to pay for the expenses of, of, of haircuts and of sacrifices and all that went with the Nazarite vow, somebody with affluence would sort of join in, support them, pay for all of that, showing that they agreed with what these men were doing. And they're suggesting Paul do just that and join in with them. And for Paul, we don't know how long these men have been under it. Typically, it was 30 days. But for Paul, it looks to be about a seven-day process. And he follows what they, what they suggest. They remind him, this is what we would have you do to be able to minister to the Jews. We've already told the Gentiles. We've been reminding them of the letter that we wrote to them back in Acts chapter, I think it was 15, of, of what we should and should not do. Gentiles meaning everyone, but certainly the new believers as well, the Gentile believers, sh should live their lives in a way that is abstaining from sin and seeking the Lord. And so we suggest, we, our judgment is, we require that they abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, verse 25, and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Meaning, if you're a Gentile believer, we've been reminding them, Paul. By the way, if we've been reminding the Gentile believers that when you're saved, your life looks different. He told this to the Corinthian church. You can't name Christ and then just waltz your way through the rest of life enjoying sin, thinking, hey. No, it's going to be significantly different. There should be fruit. And here's the basics, if you will, for the Gentile believers. And what does Paul do? He obviously agrees with them. He follows their advice. Next day, purifies himself, 
goes into the temple, gives notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled, and presents the offerings for each one of these men. Now the question might be, is Paul begrudgingly taking on the recommendation of the Jerusalem elders, or is he gladly doing that? Are the Jerusalem elders wrong or are they right in their counsel? Is there any invisible tension between folks of peer authority that can have either, that can, they can play these, these, these politics? Uh, don't tell me what to do, but I'm going to kind of go along with it, Paul's thinking. Is there any of that? Well, in, in this passage, it seems to be that most of the commentaries are sort of split. But I'll tell you what I think, and that is, I don't think Paul's doing this begrudgingly. I think he is happy uh, to go out of his way. He says as much in the, to the Corinthian church, which we're going to read here in a few moments. I, I began our time by this statement, a ministry, Paul's, Paul's involved in a ministry that proclaims Christ. Or as we are involved with a ministry that proclaims Christ for the glory of God, it keeps us rightly focused when determining how to live among our neighbors. And I'm submitting to you that this, this is the summation of what we can learn from this passage. And when we consider our neighbor, who are we talking about? Well, certainly it's your next door neighbor. Well, we would also understand it to mean our spouse, our child, our boss, our opponent. Anyone to whom you come in contact with on a regular basis, whether you know them or not. And secondly, when I, when I would say it keeps us rightly focused, I simply mean when we are focused on a relationship with another person for the glory of God and the sharing of the gospel, though you will inevitably encounter difficulty, where you're going to be tempted, made a, maybe quite a bit to go elsewhere to look for another ministry when it's rightly focused for the glory of God and the sharing of the gospel. In the midst of those difficulties, in the midst of those temptations, you're able to, to see your way through it, over and around it, if you will, keeping the main thing before you. What does Paul do? We don't... In, he endeavors to have a ministry that is centered entirely on Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is the driving desire and prevailing message of our lives, it keeps us from personal disappointment when the ministry isn't going well. Now, does that mean you won't have personal disappointment? Of course not. But it won't be derailing. Would you go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14? Romans chapter 14, you probably know it well. I want to just read the first nine verses there. It's a longer text. Follow along with me, if you will. And what I want us to, to think about is this idea that when our hearts are set upon the glory of God and the proclamation of Christ alone and not for ourselves how it helps us stay focused when we're encountering things that might be difficult and potentially derailing to that ministry and in fact we can see our way through it. This is Paul's encouragement to the Roman church. Notice what he says, verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. 
but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, we've just got to stop and recognize that the food wars have been around for some time. Apparently, somebody was going all vegetarian back then, too. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he give thanks to, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. What's Paul saying? When we die with Christ, our lives are changed. How we deal with other people shifts because our desire then becomes that they see the glory of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. When our desire is to minister Christ to our dearest loved ones, it checks the tone and choice of words in which we speak. When our desire is to minister Christ to our unbelieving boss, our reactions and statements away from his or her office, those are checked. It works on the sports field. It works with a brother and sister. It works in the classroom as well. The irate coach, the crass teacher, you desire for them to see Christ. You desire for the opportunity to present Christ to them. It shifts how you react and deal with them. Living with the sole desire of the glory of God alone through Christ alone changes how we deal with unbelieving employers, unbelieving in-laws, teachers, professors, coaches, enemies. Add to the list yourself. And not in a manipulative way. That's not Christ-like at all but you genuinely react differently to that particular individual or situation when your desire is that they might see Jesus Christ. I can hear it. It's been within my own heart. The reaction, which is, the pastor just wants us to get run over. Abused, used, trampled, kicked the punching bag for anybody to come by and if I just think I want them to see Jesus they can smack me as hard as they want and I'm just supposed to take it. And now that you mention it, yes. If it's for the sake of preaching Christ then yes, I think it's Christ. I think it's right. Christ bent to the point of death even death upon a cross for the sake that we might be saved. Getting smacked in that big of a deal. Christians don't just bend over backwards a little and then have a point where they say, no more, I've done enough. 
We're called to follow Christ so backwards bending, it's just the start to getting into the shape of a pretzel if necessary. Am I telling you to be abused and used? No, of course I'm not. Am I telling you that following Christ will probably have you staying longer and enduring more in a difficult relationship because of your genuine love for Christ and your love for the lost? Absolutely, that's what Paul does here. And what's ironic is that the Christian who is in that pretzel-bending state within a hard relationship is often so engrossed in their love for that person doing the bending that they don't even realize how twisted they've become. Until someone writes down their story and you get something along the lines of three days, five haircuts, money out of pockets, vows taken, and all that we have here. Last passage and we're through. Would you go with me to the one I mentioned earlier that I said we'd go to, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. I said earlier, I I don't think Paul is doing this begrudgingly at all, and this is the text upon which I lean upon to say that. 19 through 23, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul, his one singular desire is that God would be glorified through the preaching of Jesus Christ to those around him. And it's keeping him focused through even as we read this text, a unique set of circumstances. And even with persecution that awaits him in a few days. We can be tempted, brothers and sisters, and should be warned to be all things to all people in order to not have to preach the gospel. That's sometimes the temptation. To be all things to all people so I don't have to preach the gospel. Paul isn't on a mission to be liked and approved by as many as possible. That isn't love for the lost, that's selfishness. He's not interested in that. His interest is in gaining a word and an opportunity to speak. All that he does, he does all that is necessary. Paul does all that is necessary and even seemingly absurd for the sake of the gospel. That is for the sake of the salvation of lost souls by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, death, and resurrection for the glory of God alone. May I submit to you this morning, if you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ, what you're reading is... is about a man who gave himself all the way in following Jesus Christ because he had been given the gift of faith to recognize that Jesus Christ is the only one that could save anyone from the punishment that is due to us for our sin and from the wrath that God has set aside 
upon the sinner unsaved. Would you ask yourself the question this morning, have you been saved? I'm not asked if you've gone to church or if you've been baptized, but have you been saved? That is, has God done the work of salvation in your heart? And one of the fruits that you can look for is a desire that the lost would see Jesus Christ. We have the summer months upon us. Would you consider this morning what unsaved friend, family member, neighbor that you could actively engage these next few months in order to share Christ, evangelism? When Christ saves us, he changes us. And it's a wonderful reminder to know that that the unsaved for the Christian is something he puts within us. Love for the unsaved, for us now saved, is something he puts within us to pursue. We, we, we've desired to see that person on the sidewalk know Jesus Christ. Let us be faithful even this week to respond to those opportunities and to those desires that he might be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ, the author of our faith, the one who sustains us in our faith, the one who finishes our faith. Our faith can grow weak at times, Father. It can grow weary of the narrow road, the hard way, the call to lay down our life for Jesus Christ. Father, the passion of Paul to do even the absurd in order that others might know Christ is not some special passion he's conjured up, but it has been given to him because Paul sees clearly that Jesus Christ is the one who saved him from his sin. Father, help us this morning. We might be those who are weary of faith. We might be those whose faith is strong. But may we see more clearly the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. The Savior of the lost. Father, we don't recognize our sin as we, we should. We don't think about our pride. We don't think of these things in the way that you think of them. But as you are gracious to us, we grow in our understanding that these things are rebellion and horrendous. And if it was not for Christ, we would not be here today. So may we look again to Jesus Christ in the gospel and be moved, Father, to grow in our love for the lost. That we might see many come to faith in Jesus Christ. We give you all that glory. Father, we pray that you would encourage us this morning. We need you as our Heavenly Father to strengthen us through your word, through our fellowship here in a few minutes, through prayer. Father, I pray for the disheartened soul this morning, for the discouraged soul might be among us as they would walk out into the daylight with another few days ahead of them 
May they walk out knowing without a doubt that the Lamb of God for sinners was slain for them. That though their circumstances may seem bleak, your love for them as their Heavenly Father has never been stronger. Father, we thank you for the way that you sustained Paul during these difficult times and we know that you are the same God that was with Paul, that is with us. You never change. You're eternal. And as you strengthened and sustained Paul, you'll do so for us. We lean heavily upon that. That's all we have to lean on. May your name be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.